Hello and welcome to Anjali Vision, a twice-monthly podcast hosted by me, Anjali Misra, a Chicago-based freelance writer and community organizer and general pop culture trivia savant. Each episode, I offer my best analysis of current shows across multiple platforms and genres and interview a guest expert on their favorite TV show or current obsession. Come for the intersectional feminist critiques of popular media, stay for the surprisingly deep conversations with folks from a variety of backgrounds about what they love or hate to watch. Hello and welcome, dear listeners, to episode three of Unjali Vision. Today is a very special day. We have Corey Lynn back, back in the guest seat to talk about season two of Yellow Jackets. We're going to do an analytical deep dive. It's going to get real gory, for lack of a better term. So stick around. But before I jump to my interview with Corey, a quick recap of what I am watching. We are deep in the series finale season of Barry on HBO Max, and I am devastated. Just enjoyed it so much, and I'm going to miss it. Although I do understand when a story reaches its logical conclusion, and you can't tell any more of a story. And it's so funny because I feel like the show is doing a good job of ending before it jumps the shark. And if Henry Winkler is listening, I'm so sorry that I just used that metaphor from the first show you were ever on to describe this most recent show that you are now on. But anyway, Barry on HBO Max, starring Bill Hader, Henry Winkler, Sarah Goldberg, Stephen Root, Anthony Kerrigan, star-studded cast. Everyone was so good, so funny, but also so dramatic and scary. Just like the concept of the show itself, which is about a man who is a former United States Marine who becomes an assassin for hire but then tries to leave his life of crime behind to become an actor. And hilarity and violence ensues for four long seasons. Again, y'all, such a good show. Gonna miss it. If you haven't watched it, please do. Tell me what you think. Speaking of series finales, I also have to say goodbye to Titans on HBO Max. The series finale aired, I want to say last week. I don't know. Time has been a blur. In any case, loved Titans. It was, it's described as a gritty retelling of the Teen Titans from DC comic book fame. And uh, gritty it was, but also very heartwarming to watch this band of young heroes become family while fighting crime. I know I'm making it sound cheesy, but I really did enjoy Titans. I gotta say, though, the final episode revealed to me that this was not a planned cancellation because it just felt so abrupt. And the way that they tried to 
put a neat little bow on every character's story arc fell flat. I just feel like the show deserved a better ending. Raven, who is this like interdimensional Wanda Maximoff style hero, decides to put her superhero days behind her and go to community college. The new Robin decides to split his time between Gotham and Metropolis, which is fine. Sure. Maybe he'll get a spinoff. That would be great because he's cool. Y'all, it was disappointing. Justice for the Titans. This past week, I also started watching Bupkis, the Pete Davidson show on Peacock. And I gotta say, it's just all right so far. To be honest with you, I don't know if I'm going to continue watching it. It just feels like another project in Pete Davidson's quest to humanize himself before the American audience. And... Again, I can't tell whether it is irreverent or just uh, not very well produced. I will say Joe Pesci is great as Davidson's fictional grandfather. (laughs) We love Joe Pesci ever since Home Alone. Oh, and Goodfellas. Don't forget. While I'm on the subject of shows starring people playing somewhat fictionalized versions of themselves, I do want to recommend Nora from Queens. I think it's on a couple different streaming platforms, but I watch it through HBO Max. And the show follows Nora, played by Aquafina, and her cousin Edmund, played by Bowen Yang, one of my favorite comedians out there, as they just try to navigate their young adulthood, make their dreams come true in Flushing, New York, with a little help from Nora's father, played by legendary B.D. Wong, and her grandmother, played by the legendary Lori Tan Chin. Highly recommend. Okay, everybody, without further ado, here is my deep dive of Yellow Jackets Season 2 with Corey Lin. Thanks for coming back on the show, Corey. Thank you for having me. We're here to follow up our conversation from last month when we talked about Yellow Jackets season one. We're now eight episodes deep into season two of the show. There's one more episode, I believe. Only one left. I'm wondering if you can give folks a very brief synopsis of season two. Yes. So we are in season two in a what feels like a much more fever dream like season. In the two timelines and the young timeline, it's winter one and the girls are starving and things are starting to look very desperate and, and deadly after Jackie's death. Episode one, I think, is like a couple of months after Jackie has died and there is a lot of grief happening. In the adult timeline... It feels like things are just in shambles. The adults are trying to recover and move on after covering up Adam's murder. I would say all throughout season two, all of the adults are experiencing a lot of traumas that they have tried to push away, rise back to the surface with the reappearance of Lottie and her purple cult 
eventually all the adults are brought together. In this season, we see a couple of really big plot points happen. There is the first instance of cannibalism, which is an accident, or the roasting was an accident when they try to burn Jackie's body and then accidentally barbecue her. You see the eating of Jackie. We see the reappearance of Lottie. We see Van and Ty's reunion after Dark Ty experiences many episodes and is brought um, back to Van. We also see a very traumatic birth Shauna delivers in this season. And at the very end where we are at episode eight right now, we see the creation of the hunting ritual, which has been foreshadowed a lot, but we now see actually happen. I personally am a lot more invested in the young person plotline of season two than the adult plotline, which is very confusing at some times. I'm like, what is happening? But yeah, those are the, the high points for me of what's happened so far in, in season two. Yeah, thank you for that. Oh my gosh, hearing it all laid out like that, so much is happening on this dang show. It's really hard. I feel like there was like the week where we had a break in between two episodes and I was like, I needed that break. I <laughs> yeah. needed a little rusty roo after, after all <laughs> the drama. Yeah, for sure. These characters are going through a lot. Reflecting on this season, what has been standing out to you? What's really tugging at your mind? There's a couple things that I really love about this season. And I think uh, one is a question and one is just like an artistic observation. I think the the question, and this is what I, I feel like I talk about with so many people, is what do you think is happening? Do you think that something is supernatural or not? I think there's um, a couple of camps of folks who might believe that there's like a literal curse. The place that they're in is cursed and that's why these bad things are happening. And then there's other folks who believe that trauma and starvation can drive anyone to anything and that there might not be anything specifically supernatural happening. And so then I feel like that's like the question that the whole show is yeah, based around. And I love that you can spin it in, in either direction, depending on what your perspective is. But the other thing that I really like in this season is I feel like how they're using magical realism, but I don't know if that's exactly, like, I feel like they are using um, film in a way that shows different perceived realities. Like an example of this being that like when they first eat Jackie, which is horrifying in so many ways, they don't make us as viewers watch them cannibalize that body. Something that was just like very clever and considerate to me as a viewer. I'm here for the horror, right? But I also don't really want to watch them eat Jackie's face. I think like stuff like that is like a really creative visual tool. But then also in the most recent episode, I was so horrified to find out that Akilah's mouse was dead. Oh yeah. And the way that they let us live for sometimes episodes and episodes in a vision, in a psychosis, in a non-consensual reality. And we as viewers don't know what's happening or not. I think that's such a clever tool in showing like an artistic way of framing the madness that's going on through starvation. Yeah. Later on in that episode, so you're right, we find out 
Sheila's little pet mouse that she's been keeping in her pocket and hiding from everyone. We see it as this cute little alive thing that she pets and talks to. And then halfway through the episode, we find out with her that she's been carrying around the little mummified mouse corpse of her pet in her pocket. And then even later in the episode... She, like, thinks about eating it because she's starving. Oh, man, the journey that this show is taking us on, even just, like, with one character, mm-hmm. is so intense. Yeah, I think those are the two things that are really standing out from the season. I would, would love to know what is standing out that's good for you. I do have something that's, like, nagging on me. What I'm liking about this season is I feel like there is more connectivity between what's happening with the young women and then their adult selves. Mm -hmm. There's more of a reflection, I think, between the two timelines than there was in the first season. I feel like I'm seeing in real time how what they went through as girls is informing them Mm -hmm. as adults, informing their choices and decisions and relationships in a way that it, it didn't feel as clear in the first season It felt like they were all very different people. And I think maybe that was intentional. I think because they hadn't yet had to confront what happened to them 25 years ago until this season, like they are really drawn together as a result of like trying to cover up this murder and then dealing with the aftermath. And so it's really reopening these old wounds. Like there's even an episode like this season called Old Wounds. They're like having to reckon with what happened to them is now becoming like unavoidable. You just saw the ways that each woman either tried to deny or accept or come to terms in their own individual way mm-hmm. with what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't have gotten that opportunity if they hadn't all been together in the first place. That dynamic has been super interesting for me to watch. Yeah, it's just been also hard to watch, again, them as girls. Mm-hmm. just continue to like suffer with unrelentingly this has never really happened in real life that we know of that people have been stranded places and lost and not found for a year or whatever but to the extent to which that they keep coming up against challenge after challenge to their own survival is just hard to watch especially because they're just like girls <laughs> like but you were saying there was something that was nagging you i like to read the yellow jacket subreddit and the autostraddle recap comments. And a lot of people on the Yellow Jackets subreddit have really lost interest this season. And they feel like the show has gone downhill. And I feel like I understand that sentiment, but I feel it in a little bit of a different way where I mostly feel confused or I feel like this is like a bridge season almost for the adult plot line it doesn't feel as exciting to me as what I felt like the Adam plot line was that resulted in the Yellow Jackets reuniting and coming together that felt so satisfying like I remember the swoop in my heart that I felt when they walked through their high school reunion doors like all four of them together and that was like it felt so satisfying and joyful to me and then now the thing that has been growing is me watching Shauna unearthing these horrors that 
she's retained in her body and for Ty at the beginning to see the ways that she was just repressing great um, divisions within herself and watching those kind of fall apart um, at the beginning of the season, I felt was very strong. I also have a good friend, Ali Fireside Ostergaard, who has said that it is hard to watch Nat's character in this season and the way that she's acting might be more of a stereotypical addict and like less with, I think, some of the nuance of all of the trauma and the characters that the rest of the adult women have. This is something that you and I talked about before, too, which is like, because Natalie's character, unfortunately, one of her defining characteristic is that she's a recovering addict. And that is also how the other adult women in her life view her and treat her. And even though halfway through the season, she actually uses her time at Lottie's retreat center to get sober and stay sober something that her character still is not able to escape because one of the things that she confronts with Lottie when they are together at the retreat center is how she feels guilty for Travis dying. It just feels bad (laughs) to watch that happen to this character that you're rooting for. Yeah. And I, I think that's something, especially after this most recent episode where the ritual, the hunting ritual is created while they're at the kind of at the very cusp of group starvation where they create the ritual of pulling the queen from the deck means that you are then hunted um are sacrificed for the survival of the group and natalie pulls the card and then travis intervenes and natalie runs away like that entire time you're like thinking about them sitting in a circle at the sharing circle and you're like y'all have gone through so much together And to think about the layers on top of the layers, especially like in the beginning of the season when Natalie and Lottie are together and then you see this like hunting and you see them as adults at odds, but having this unexplicable tie. And then you see them as youth being at odds and then both of them almost dying in order to try to find food for the group. And then you see them come to a place of mutual respect at the end. There's just so many layers to, I think, what Natalie has experienced. And you don't get to see as much of that versus I feel like you are we're in this season, you're slowly peeling apart those layers of Shauna. So something else that I wanted to to talk about and during our little break, I did Google it. And so is thinking about the use of the Greek mythology as an illusion, an illusion and an illusion with an A and with an I through the end of season one and in season two. And I think in the Doom coming episode when they're on shrooms and also in the the episode where they eat Jackie, some more overt Greek mythology illusions. And I looked it up and the female followers of Dionysus are called maenads, which comes from the word maenadis, meaning mad or demented. And there's this article even on JSTOR Daily by Saki Firani, who wrote about this, I think, after season one, but just like from like a classics literature perspective, runs through all of the ways that the young girls and the filming of them shows these symbols of 
the revelers of Dionysus. Like there's, I think they stuff a pine cone into Travis's mouth at one point before they hunt him. And I guess a pine cone is a significant symbol. There's also a moment when they're like high on shrooms and Shauna is like scratching at the ground and like a milky substance comes out. And I guess that's also a Greek mythology reference. That was really cool for me to read about just how the showrunners are intentional about some of these symbols when it comes to layering in like greater meaning to this moment of just like extreme hunger and or just like being high on shrooms and also evoking the girls as maenads in the first place and that being a moment in both of those episodes where coach ben is super alienated from the group he is always seen from the side or outside of that experience and he's not a part of this revelry at all and it makes it feel like something for me where it's really because of the close bonds of these girls and literally because of their social structure and ties together that they're able to engage in these dream emotions together and still wake up the next day and continue to be living their lives. I wanted to ask you like about what it means for there to be a trope of mad women showing up throughout Yellow Jacket as a whole. The focus on these women and the way that they are dealing with their trauma and what they went through and the the horrors of their lives is super interesting and unique, I think, from anything I've seen, like other representations of quote-unquote mad women And I dug up this paper I wrote in grad school about that character trope and the way it has shown up in literature and film and TV. And so often, like, you get these, like, characters, for example, like Sarah Connor from Terminator. Like, she's literally institutionalized because no one believes her when she says that a robot came from the future and told me that my son would save humanity from the AI apocalypse. And they were like, nah, lady, that that's crazy. We're putting you in a hospital. But then the whole trajectory of the Terminator franchise is her becoming a badass so that she can like work with this robot man <laughs> to save humanity. And so it's in that case, like the mad woman ends up being like the hero figure, the the Joan of Arc like type character. And then on the other hand, the way we often see like mad women treated in popular media is like that they are like witchy and completely unhinged and they're cult leaders and they're dangerous and evil. And it's interesting because I feel like none of the characters fit those tropes perfectly. And that's what makes it interesting and exciting to watch them because I know we were talking about how you, you find adult Lottie annoying, but I, I'm super interested in her character because she could have been characterized as this malevolent, unhinged, mad woman, cult leader figure, or she could have been sanctified and turned into this whatever holy spiritual leader, unfairly put on this pedestal, and she doesn't know how to handle it. But then as an adult, we see her like grappling with, am I mad? Am I right? Am I wrong? I like these people who come to stay at my retreat center, like they can leave whenever they want. Like we take their phones because is she kidding herself or is she like, does she truly believe that what she's doing is right? That's what I find interesting about her character. It's not clear cut. Sometimes she doesn't even know what her motivations are. 
yeah, the last time we talked about this, I was like concerned about where Lottie's character was going to go and if they were going to, yeah, push her into these stereotypical ways. And I feel like what I enjoy is that I don't like old Lottie, but not because of any of the stereotypical reasons. I, yeah, I I was just like, I just don't like her because she's annoying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the other thing I was going to say is that I listened to a Yellow Jackets podcast that I really like. It's called The Antler Queens. They have this one really amazing episode that is called Yellow Jackets and Trauma with Dr. Jesse Gold, where they talk to a trauma, I think, researcher, psychologist, I'm not sure, but would recommend that show. And also just the Dr. Gold had said that Yellow Jackets is one of the best examples of how trauma functions in ourselves now and because of the myriad of ways that it's showing up and the ways that it is both inexplicable and not understood by like the characters themselves and for each of the characters each of the adults even though they have gone through very similar experiences the way that they are exerting it or the way that it shows up for them is in totally different ways. And that being like a really great example of how trauma actually works. And I think we can see that kind of start to, yeah, be played out in the sharing circle. Thanks again. It's always a pleasure to do these analytical deep dives into this show with you. Thanks for having me. I love Anjali Vision. Thanks so much for listening, friends. I have been your host, Anjali Misra. My guest today was Corey Lynn, and this episode was edited by Audrey Cornell. Anjali Vision is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.